This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Well, I'm just delighted to be here, and I'm actually just so happy to have had the opportunity to explore a little bit further this interesting topic of food and mood. So, um, and I've even woven a little chocolate into this, so you just kind of have to wait toward the end. Okay, Um, so let me see if I can remember how to do all this. So it turns out that mood disorders are very common, particularly in older adults. And approximately one out of every five older adults uh, has actually depression, diagnosed depression, and it, the um, levels of anxiety are, or the, those with anxiety is about the same, somewhere between 10 and 20%. So um, I don't know how many of you have experienced this yourself or had family members or friends that have experienced this, but I think the good news is that we can do things with our diet that can minimize <clears throat> the symptoms Um, minimize or make us feel better and probably also help us use less drugs. And um, so I'm going to go through those things. If you have questions or I say words that seem confusing, (coughs) don't hesitate to ask a question, but there'll be plenty of time at the end also. Okay? So the things that we're going to talk about that affect mood include blood sugar imbalances, Um, Lack of certain amino acids, particularly tryptophan, phenylalanine, and tyrosine. These are precursors for some of the neurotransmitters that you've heard about, including serotonin, dopamine, and noradrenaline. Um, Inadequate B vitamins and other nutrients, including choline and magnesium, can also contribute to mood disorders. And um, there's some really interesting research on the level of the essential fatty acids. We call them the fish oils, omega-3 fatty acids, and their impact on mood disorders. So we'll go through all of those and then weave a little bit of chocolate in there toward the end. Okay? Um, So let's start out with impaired blood sugar control. Symptoms of impaired blood sugar control include irritability, well, all these things that you can list here, insomnia, poor concentration, forgetfulness, um, depression, and crying spells. So when, uh, by changing the way we eat and being careful of refined carbohydrates, we can actually impact the way we feel. And um, let's go into some of the um, sort of the amounts or the number of people that that suffer from this. Um, If you go down to that bottom line, I actually found this really um, surprising, that it looks like one out of every two adults over the age of 65 have a condition called prediabetes, and that would be what you might call impaired blood sugar control. So simply having impaired blood sugar control could be contributing to some of these mood disorders that people experience. Um, So I think we already know this, but I'd like to emphasize the importance of cutting back on sugars 
both sugars that are added to food um, and sugars that contain a lot of um, foods that contain a lot of sugar naturally. Um, the thing to remember about foods with a lot of sugar is that it takes B vitamins to metabolize the sugar, but sugar doesn't contain any B vitamins. So when we have a diet with a lot of sugar in it, we are potentially impacting the amount of B vitamins that we have available for normal body functioning. And that can affect the way we feel. So I put together this slide because I think we all know that sodas are a really important source of sugar. Are you surprised to see 17 teaspoons in a 20 ounce container of Pepsi? But <clears throat> I think people sometimes don't realize how much sugar is in some of the beverages that we think of as more healthy or healthier choices. So if you just look at like Naked Green Machine, you know, we talk a lot about the importance of green leafy vegetables and kale has gotten very good press recently and for good reason. But when we put that into a sugar-filled drink, it isn't helpful in terms of our mood condition. So um, things like Jamba Juice Mango can have the equivalent of 16 teaspoons of sugar. And the way that you translate, if you're looking at a food label, the food label will tell you the number of grams of sugar per serving. And then you just divide that by four, and that will tell you how many teaspoons of sugar. And at least for me, it helps me to think of the teaspoons in a beverage. It, it's kind of an incentive to be a little bit more careful. So just cutting back on sugar can make a big difference. Um, this particular study actually showed that folks who drank approximately four cans of soda per day were 30% more likely to develop depression compared to those <clears throat> who drank no soda. And um, this is not exactly a promotion for coffee, but did you notice how coffee actually has the opposite impact? Um, and of course, that's not coffee necessarily with a lot of sugar added to it. Okay? So a number of years ago, I was flipping through a medical journal, and um, this was actually the text in an advertisement for antidepressants. Um, I feel anxious all the time, the woman is telling her doctor, yet I have no energy, I can't concentrate on my work, and I don't even feel like going out on the weekends because I'm so tired. <clears throat> I wake up in the middle of the night and I can't get back to sleep. I'm worried, doctor, and I know it's probably my own fault, but I just feel so useless and empty inside. What's the matter with me? So I'm reading this, you know, realizing that it's an ad for antidepressants, and yet I'm a dietitian, and what's just screaming out at me is, is this woman B vitamin deficient? <laughs> so the deficiency symptoms for B vitamins are depression and vague fears, emotional instability, decreased ability to cope with problems, confusion and forgetfulness, irritability and quarrelsomeness. So I just want to put that out there for us to be thinking about are we getting enough of these foods that are rich sources of B vitamins 
And are we potentially maybe taking in too much sugar so we're sort of stressing the system and maybe you know, creating a greater need? Dark green leafy vegetables are one of the very best sources of B vitamins. That's where your kale and spinach come in. Um, legumes are peas, beans, and lentils. Whole grains, nuts and seeds, meat, fish, and poultry, and milk products. So basically whole natural foods are very good sources of B vitamins. But unfortunately, a lot of folks are not eating those on a regular basis. You know, rather processed food that's primarily white flour, white sugar, and isolated fat. So the way to normalize blood sugar is to limit carbohydrates, especially sugar, refined grains, and potatoes. Um, eat whole foods that are low in natural sugar and high in fiber. Eat regular meals with some protein and healthy fat at each meal. And the reason we say that is that helps to slow down the digestion and absorption of carbohydrates so that you don't get an acute rise in blood sugar after a meal followed by an acute drop. And then it's also really important, and especially as we get older, to be physically active. It's really important to try to hold on to muscle mass and reduce fat mass because when and even with a normal weight, as we get older, you know, that we have this tendency to lose muscle and replace it with fat. And the more fat we have on our body, the more insulin resistant we are. And so we have a lot more trouble controlling our blood sugar levels. Okay? And I have friends here from my yoga class, so I just want to say, yay. <laughs> we got to do yoga. We got to do our walking. We've got to get on the treadmill, etc. Uh-huh. Those are much better choices. He's asking about yams and sweet potatoes. They are higher in fiber, but you still need to be careful because, you know, in terms of portion size. So I would say white potatoes would be really try to stay away from those. Sweet potatoes, okay, but just not huge portions. Okay? Um, in terms of glycemic load, and it sort of relates to some of these questions, um, we ask people to be on a, what we call a low glycemic load diet. And that means um, if you're talking about carbohydrate foods, the non-starchy vegetables are considered low glycemic load. Um, that's basically all vegetables except for potatoes. Um, and even though peas and corn are on the starchy side, they're pretty high in fiber. So as far as glycemic load goes, they're sort of like okay. Um, it may surprise you that fruit is considered low glycemic load. And the reason is because of the fiber that's in fruit. When you, you know, take an orange, which has a lot of fiber, and you change that into orange juice, you have lost that advantage, okay? So high glycemic foods include all grains, and this might come as a shock to many of us. I mean, this took a while for me to adjust to. But even whole grains, if they're eaten in large quantities, can cause you know, acute elevation in blood sugar. Not as acute as in a refined grain. But if you're truly wanting to be on a low glycemic load diet to control blood sugar elevations, 
then you, you know, if you're going to do grains, just go easy on your portion sizes. All right? And we already know that candy cake cookies, etc., are high glycemic load. Uh-huh. Can you give an idea of portion size when you're saying portion size? Do you mean a half a cup? So a, a slice of bread would be a serving, okay. a half a cup of cooked something like oatmeal. Right. Okay? And then the other point that's made on this slide that I really like to point out is that um, the more fiber that's in a food or a meal, the better it's going to be for glycemic load. But the other thing that is becoming more of an issue is particle size. So if you take something like a, a lovely, you know, old-fashioned rolled oats or steel-cut oats, they have a much lower glycemic response in the body than when you change that to an instant oat where you change the particle size so it cooks faster. And this always surprises me because old-fashioned rolled oats take like five minutes in the microwave to cook. But food manufacturers have made us think that, that takes, that's too long. And so they've made like instant, you know, quick cooking oats that take like two minutes. And then we basically have even gone further where we have those microwavable packets that are like oat powder that has sugar added to it. And so every step along the way in that refining, you've had an impact on blood sugar rise after a feeding. Um, when you take a grain for breakfast, you can slow the elevation in blood sugar by throwing in some almonds or walnuts. You know, some kind of a healthy fat um, will slow down the digestion and absorption. Okay. So you asked about artificial sweeteners, and that really isn't the answer either. Um, and what's on this slide may actually come as kind of a surprise to people, but artificial sweeteners actually stimulate appetite and can have the effect of increasing food intake. They also trick the body into thinking that sugar is coming, and so insulin levels rise. And when insulin levels rise, you tend to store fat more readily. Okay? Um, they also have the impact of slowing metabolic rate by reducing core temperature, so you don't need as many calories. Um, so all in all, I think we just need to kind of wean ourselves down on sugar and not sort of move ourselves over to an artificial sweetener. And the other thing that I recently learned, and I just want to share, because some people really like to bake with Splenda, for example. Um, Splenda actually has a lot of chloride in it. It's part of how they changed the structure, or made the structure. And chloride is very, uh, you know, we, we worry a lot about not adding oxidation to the body. Okay, because we take antioxidants to protect ourselves from all this damage. But chloride is an oxidizing agent. So using a lot of Splenda in cooking is not something you necessarily want to do either. Okay. What about, excuse me, what about stevia? Um, so stevia is um, more natural. Um, 
but it's actually, in its natural form, it's an herb, and that's the way that we should be using it, as a leaf, okay? Once you've refined the compound out of the leaf, that's sort of going a long way to say that it's better. Um, as far as I know, and there's been very little research in terms of pros and cons health-wise, um, I don't know that it has these same impacts, because I've not seen any research that would indicate that. Um, but I would still say probably, I actually would say I would go with sugar, which has been around for millennia, and just try to really keep weaning yourself down, because you get used to less sugar over time. Same with salt. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, um, you have okay. So all of the, like the natural ones, like honey and maple syrup and agave, I, I'm kind of, I sort of like the idea of agave because I think of it as coming from the southwest where we live. <laughs> so there's some benefit to that, you know, like maple syrup is from an entirely different part of the country. Um, and, and I would favor those as more natural, but again, we just have to be careful with the amount, okay? So let, let's go back to this for just a minute. So moving into some of the protein issues and the essential amino acids and their role, um, it turns out that <coughs> serotonin um, actually is made in the body from tryptophan, and serotonin is thought to primarily impact mood, whereas the compounds dopamine, noradrenaline, and adrenaline are made more from phenylalanine and tyrosine, two other amino acids, and they're thought primarily to impact motivation. So really both or all of those are important. Um, you have this in your handout, and what I did is chose 12 of the slides that I thought had more information that you could you know, read later. But this is really a helpful slide, I think, to understand all of the different nutrients that are involved in this whole area of mood enhancing um, or how we feel. Um, and tryptophan actually requires B vitamins, C and zinc, to be able to, you know, ch be able to change into serotonin. Um, the same with phenylalanine. Have any of you heard of the of TMG or trimethylglycine betaine? Have you heard this term betaine? Um, you can kind of think beets, because really beets and spinach are the only two food sources. Um, do any of you know people that take SAM-E for depression? Okay. Um, I mean, they even sell it at Trader Joe's. You know, it's very mainstream. Um, so... The, all of these compounds are interrelated in different ways, and even the omega-3 fatty acids can improve the um, neurotransmitter reception. And also, the brain is like 40% DHA, which is one of those omega-3 fatty acids. So we'll go through these things one at a time, and um, <clears throat> hopefully I'll have some practical suggestions for you. So let's start with serotonin. Um, it's a neurotransmitter. It's synthesized in the brain from tryptophan. There are some foods that contain serotonin, 
but you can't get the serotonin from food through the blood-brain barrier. So you've got to have enough of this essential amino acid to be able to make adequate amounts of serotonin. It's really important in affecting mood, satiety, or the feeling of fullness after a meal. And it's also really important in sleep regulation, which is something, as we get older, that seems to be sort of an ongoing challenge. Um, Tryptophan is converted to serotonin through enzymatic action, and it requires B6. So I'm going to keep kind of weaving in, you know, where some of these B vitamins are pretty important in this whole process. Low-protein diets can be a challenge um, because you may not be getting enough tryptophan to make adequate amounts of serotonin. So a lot of the sort of familiar antidepressants that folks take um, are in this class called selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs. And what they do is help to elevate the amount of serotonin in the body. Um, so you've heard of some of these, Celexa, Cymbalta, Lexapro, uh, Paxil, etc. Prozac, you know, we're a Prozac nation, they say. Um, but they all have side effects, which include irritability, trouble sleeping, or drowsiness. They can be associated with headache, changes in appetite, and sexual dysfunction. So I would sort of like to make the case, let's try to do what we can with diet so that we can reduce the need for these, or at least reduce the amount, potentially. So how do we get enough tryptophan? Um, basically, if you eat lean protein foods on a regular basis, you should get plenty of tryptophan. And that could be lean meat, fish, or poultry. It could be eggs or a source of protein. It could be peas, beans, or lentils, um, <clears throat> if you're a vegetarian. Um, when you're getting tryptophan from food, you're also bringing in B vitamins and zinc both of which are really important for the metabolism of these compounds. Some people took tryptophan supplements, and you probably heard that sometimes these can be contaminated and have been associated with this flu-like syndrome that seems to be <clears throat> irreversible. So I'm always really uncomfortable when people are using amino acid supplements. So how do we know if we're getting enough protein? Basically, an active adult requires 0.4 to 0.6 grams per pound of body weight. And so if you find one of these weights there that's closest to where you are, um, I just kind of ballpark it and say, if you're getting somewhere around 75 to 100 grams of protein, you're probably doing okay. okay? So keep in mind about 75 to 100 grams of protein is what you need. <clears throat> Every ounce of meat, fish, or poultry gives you about 7 grams. And so 
I always just like look at my finger. You know, if this was like a piece of like a chicken finger, okay, um, that would be about an ounce. And if I put three fingers together, that would be sort of three ounces, okay. I have a deck of cards there because most people can kind of visualize what a deck of cards looks like. That's about three ounces. So if you got some like three ounce piece for lunch maybe and dinner, that would be six times seven or 42. If you don't do meat, fish, or poultry, you can you know, count beans. A half a cup serving is seven grams. Um, nuts and seeds also contain protein. Pumpkin seeds are particularly high. Um, cheese, milk products are high. And I think what surprises people is even vegetables. So, you know, we're encouraging people to eat vegetables because they're nutrient-rich. Um, and a half cup of cooked vegetables gives you two grams of protein, okay? May not be as high in some of these essential amino acids. So that's why I would really encourage people to do more lean meat, fish, poultry, or beans. So this was kind of interesting. It, it turns out that dietary carbohydrate triggers insulin, as we know, and this actually enhances the availability of tryptophan to the central nervous system. And that's kind of interesting because um, maybe that is one of the reasons why people crave carbohydrate when they feel low. You know, maybe they're trying to like get a little bit more of it past the blood-brain barrier. So my issue here with this slide is, you know, you might be tempted to eat candy, but if you're having that carbohydrate craving, wouldn't it be much better choice for you to choose a piece of fruit? Because, you know, you're going to get other natural protectors with that and not so much sugar plus fiber. Okay? So... Remember Sam E. Um, was one of those intermediates on the way to some of these um, neurotransmitters. It turns out, um, and it's good to remember, that this is naturally occurring in the body and it's found throughout the body in, in many tissues and in fluids in the body. But some people do take supplements of Sam E. to uh, treat uh, depression. And the doses generally that are used are somewhere between 800 and 1600 milligrams per day, um, which should be taken in a divided dose. But again, just like with antidepressants, these can have side effects. So it's good to realize that if some people experience dry mouth, nausea, gas, diarrhea, headache, anxiety, restlessness, and insomnia, and I think uh, people that take these sometimes don't realize that they should not be taking them, you know, past middle of the day because it, they can end up staying awake as a result. Um, but in a very recent article from 2011, they actually found that using SAMe for depression was quite effective and had minimal side effects. So. Um, you know, there does seem to be some potential there. Um, betaine is another natural compound. You can get it in food. There aren't many good sources. Um, it plays also very important roles, including production of the neurotransmitters serotonin and dopamine. 
But also melatonin, which is interesting because melatonin is really important for normal sleep patterns. And it also plays a role in the production of CoQ10, which is very important for energy metabolism in the body. We um, can increase SAMe in the body by remethylating homocysteine. So there's a connection between those two compounds. And have you heard of this term methylation? Okay, so it's kind of complicated to explain, but I think what keeps coming up to me and what I'd like to reiterate is that really health is a question of balance. And a lot of these nutrients that are involved in neurotransmitter production are interrelated, and a low amount of one can impact levels of others. And so ideally, we want to keep the right amount of all of these precursor compounds. Um, But if we get low in one, others can compensate. Then we might get low in that also. Um, Betaine is formed in the body from choline. And um, the recommended amount of choline is 550 milligrams per day for males and 425 for females. So I think the important take-home message here is that the very best source of choline in the diet is eggs. And I bring that up because I think for so many years, eggs have gotten such a bad rap, and we've been made to feel so worried about eating eggs. And you know, instead, we're eating egg whites. Okay? Um, the choline is found in the yolk. And so I, at least, would like to encourage you not to be so afraid of eggs, but I am going to tell you that I'd like you to err on the side of what I call naked eggs, okay, which would be hard-boiled or poached. What's interesting and may surprise you all is that really very few people, a, a small number of people, quarter or so, 25%, are actually sensitive to the cholesterol that are in eggs and may be related to elevated cholesterol. But a majority of us, even though we're getting a lot of cholesterol from egg, it isn't going to impact the cholesterol levels in our body. So um, reconsider eggs, but do try to have them without, you know, cooking them in butter, serving them with a sweet roll, having them, you know, with bacon. Because really it's probably all of those other things that come with an egg breakfast that are much more worrisome in terms of our cholesterol levels. So this slide just reiterates some of the connection between these nutrients that impact some of these Uh, compounds that affect our mood. Disturbances in the availability or in the metabolism of choline, folate, B12, methionine results in compensatory changes, as I said, in the others. Humans who are choline deficient have a higher demand for folate because it's required to regenerate methionine from homocysteine. And have any of you had your homocysteine levels checked? 
because the doctors are doing this more regularly. Nobody here in this room? Um, it's, It's actually interesting that the interest is often related to cardiovascular disease, and your doctor will check the homocysteine levels uh, because they're considered a potential risk for some of these chronic diseases. But it's also good to realize that when your homocysteine levels are elevated, it could be a sign that you're low in some of these key nutrients that are involved in the production of these neurotransmitters, okay? including folic acid and choline. So again, I want to reiterate the importance of getting adequate amounts of B vitamin-rich foods. Um, Dark green leafies, you know, lean and green is like a really great way to save calories and get a lot of the nutrients that you need. Um, Peas, beans, and lentils, um, as long as they don't have a lot of fat added to them. Um, Nuts and seeds are calorie-dense. Lean meat, fish, and poultry and then um, milk products. Just a couple of other things to get us to think about. Um, Do any of you know folks that are taking metformin for diabetes? It's pretty commonly, yeah, prescribed. Metformin can actually increase the risk of B12 deficiency. And B12 is, again, one of these nutrients that's very important in neurological functioning. And um, it may cause a problem with folate levels. And then the other thing is, have any of you heard of this genetic, you could call it a defect, but it's very common. Um, About 1% or one out of every 100 people have this little genetic, what's called a SNP, um, genetic defect um, in the MTHFR methyl tetrahydrofolate reductase. I think that's it. Um, so what, what that means is you're in pretty good shape when you're getting folic acid or folate from food. But if you're not somebody who's eating all of those B vitamin rich foods that I mentioned, and you're getting most of your folic acid in the form of as folic acid, like in vitamin supplements or fortified grains, you may not be able to take that form of folic acid and get it into its metabolically active form. So if you're one of these people that has this SNP, getting your dark green leafies and these other sources of whole foods is really the way to go, okay? Magnesium is a mineral that's really important in terms of controlling mood. Um, It appears uh, when you get inadequate amounts of magnesium, you tend to have lower levels of serotonin, again, which impacts mood. Antidepressants have been shown to raise the brain levels of magnesium. And this was really interesting, a couple of pretty recent articles. Um, This one, uh, the first one from 2012, found that 
a vast majority, 89% of adults in this particular study, I think it was you know, not a huge study, but it had like 250 people in it, um, who were 65 years or older, reported low dietary intakes of magnesium when they actually did dietary analyses on them. And a third of them had low blood levels. Okay? Now, they looked at plasma magnesium, and that's not considered a good true sign, but even the plasma was low in a third of them. The better way to determine if your magnesium levels are adequate is to get a test uh, where you're looking at magnesium in the red blood cells. It's called RBC magnesium. <clears throat> so if you're concerned about magnesium levels, that's what you want to ask for. There's strong evidence that deficiency of essential elements, including magnesium, can lead to the development of depression, and that supplementation, this was interesting, can actually enhance the therapeutic effect of antidepressants. And so there's been some um, co-administering. In other words, you give the antidepressants, but you also give extra magnesium, and you get better benefit in terms of uh, affecting mood. So here come all the same foods, right? But, um, but did you notice chocolate was the second one on the list? Okay. One article that I said, I, I ran into as I was reviewing, it said, um, magnesium, the original chill pill. And I thought that was really cute because magnesium is very important for normal neurological functioning. And getting adequate amounts of magnesium can definitely reduce the risk of depression and anxiety. So, you know, if you think about what you're regularly eating and do like a little mental check, you can kind of get an idea if you're getting an adequate amount of magnesium or if maybe you need a little bit more. Um, the amount that males should be getting is about 420 milligrams per day, females about 320. So, Chocolate is not only delicious, um, and it's got to raise mood just because it makes us happy to eat it, but um, it is a good source of magnesium. Um, the darker the chocolate, of course, the more magnesium would be there, and of course we'd like to do darker so we're not getting all that extra sugar as well. There's fat and calories, so we need to be a little bit concerned about that. But this was kind of interesting. Psychological well-being was consistently better in older men. Um, in this study that had more than 1,300 men, average age 76, um, those that, were, that preferred chocolate over other candy um, reported less loneliness, more happiness, and more plans for the future. So I thought that was interesting. It's not clear why chocolate is beneficial. Um, but it could have to do with the stimulant effect of uh, chocolate. And it's actually an ounce of chocolate has about as much caffeine or stimulant um, as we'll say a third of a cup of coffee, okay? Um, maybe about the amount of tea, you know, unless it's a really strong brewed tea. So, I don't know how many of you have experienced this, but when you overdo chocolate, you can get agitated, too. You can, you know, 
it can, it can make you uh, a little bit more energetic than you want to be. So moderation in all things. And the other part that I really wanted you to see was that last bullet because chocolate unfortunately is often contaminated with lead and they're not clear where that's coming from. It may not be coming from the whole beans but maybe getting in through the manufacturing process. So it's just a good reason to do moderation. Yes. Okay. And, and then the other thing is that recently there have been some reports of cadmium contamination in chocolate and cadmium is another one of those minerals or I would say sort of contaminants that is correlated higher levels mean you have a higher risk of blood pressure uh, elevated blood pressure for one thing moving on to the omega-3 fatty acids again about a very large percent of the brain matter is made up of DHA, okay, which is one of the fish oils, DHA and EPA. Um, it influences serotonin status, and fish eaters in a variety of different studies have been shown to have lower rates of depression. And there's also quite a bit of other ongoing work related to other um, psychiatric uh, challenges. And <clears throat> omega-3 fatty acids have often been shown to be beneficial. In this particular study um, that was just reported last year, um, this was looking at women in the US, higher intakes of omega-3 and higher ratios of omega-3 to omega-6 were associated with lower risk of depressive symptoms. Especially somatic pain, that's body pain, you know, when you just kind of ache all over. Um, and also associated with more positive mood affect. Um, this was a study looking at the impact of omega-3s on anxiety. And um, they looked at medication-free participants with major depressive disorder that included anxiety. Some had anxiety and some didn't, and compared those to healthy volunteers. Those that um, had depressive disorder did have lower levels of these essential fatty acids, and a higher ratio, um, AA is arachidonic acid, don't worry about that, I'll get to that in a second, um, compared to controls. So the Fatty acid balance in our body can impact the way we feel, at least if you look at some of these studies. So here's what's going on with the way that we're eating. The recommended ratio of the omega-6 fats, which are considered pro-inflammatory, to the anti-inflammatory omega-3s should be 4 to 1. But in developed countries, the ratio currently is 16 to 1. So the tendency is for people to think that they need to take a lot of fish oil supplements to try to get that ratio back more in balance. But we, the earth really can't sustain that. You know, the rich countries will just eat all the fish in the ocean. <laughs> 
So the true way that we need to get that ratio back in balance is to be aware of where these pro-inflammatory omega-6 fats are coming from and to reduce those so that we can bring this ratio back into balance. So the omega-6 fats include foods made with and animals that are fed corn, cotton seeds, soy, safflower, and sunflower oils. Aren't all those the ones that you've been told over the years are really good for your heart, etc.? So the problem is those we're just getting way too much of and we've unbalanced ourselves. And the other thing is that we've taken animals who normally would have been eating grass. Grass, like all green leafy things, has a form of omega-3 fatty acids in it called alpha-linolenic acid. And the animals eat that just like fish eat algae that has this kind of omega-3. And they do some metabolic changes to it to change it into DHA and EPA, which is much more biologically active in the body. So when we take our animals off pasture and we put them in a feedlot and feed them corn and soy, we change their carcass fat and then we eat it and so we get more of these pro-inflammatory fats. The same can be said for chickens. You know, when you go to the farmer's market and you're buying chickens who've been running around from in the smaller farms, they're eating some grain and some corn, but they're also eating insects, and they might be eating grubs and pulling things out of the ground. And when you step on an insect or a worm, like what comes out? Green goo, right? So that green goo is alpha-linolenic acid. Well, it has that in it. So when you allow animals to eat that stuff, and then we eat those animals, we actually get a better balance of these fatty acids, more beneficial for our health. So fish, seafood, flaxseed, pastured livestock. And did you notice how I used the word grass-finished beef? So all beef is grass-fed, pretty much, until it's taken onto the feedlot. So when it says grass-fed, like anybody can put that on their label. You have to have grass-finished to mean that they were fed grass till they were killed. So some of like the lamb that comes from New Zealand, it's on grass until it's killed. Okay? Um, there is, I can't remember the name of the farm, but it's in Sorrento Valley, what's left of Sorrento, the agrarian part of Sorrento Valley. Uh, and they do raise you know, pastured animals. It's just a little challenging, um, but you can find them. And then wild salmon and sardines are good sources. So you want to try to get 3,500 milligrams a day of the omega-3 fatty acids. And I use this slide to point out sardines. 
which are my go-to fish that I recommend. Tasty or not, they're safe. And that's pretty important. They're low on the food chain, so they're less likely than some of the larger fish to have the heavy metals in them. The other thing is, do you notice how it says 835 to 1880 milligrams of these omega-3s per can, you know, those three-ounce tins? When it's in oil, some of the fat from the fish goes into the oil, okay, and then we throw the oil away. Now, if we ate the oil, then that would be okay, but most people throw that extra oil away. So actually, like at, at Trader Joe's, um, they have you know, sardines packed in water, and they could have as much as 1,900 milligrams in that little tin. So if you just got a couple of tins a week, not too expensive, very good source of those omega-3s. So I would recommend that. And I just want to point out the Monterey Bay Aquarium and some of those other websites that are on the top of that slide because there really is some concern about some of the fish in terms of the contaminants, especially the larger ones. So just today, um, and you can all get this by going home and looking on the Internet, Consumer Reports in the last few days had a, a really nice article on mercury contamination of seafood and have created some tables, um, you know, graphics that will help you to choose the safer choices in seafood so you get the healthy omega-3s and you're not picking up a lot of these heavy metals that cause other health problems. So it, if you just remember good choices if you want more fish and you put that into your browser, you'll come up with that Consumer Reports article. And somebody's doing that right now as we speak. <laughs> Okay, um, but I, I can tell you that sardines are, a, you know, a healthy choice. Okay, so what about people that really don't like fish or are allergic to fish? You can get these omega-3 fatty acids from plant sources. It's just that the plant sources, again, are not as biologically active. So it takes nine times the amount to get an equivalent you know, biological activity. So what I just want to point out is it would take about three tablespoons of flax seed meal to give you 500 milligrams of DHA and EPA. So you can do flax or you can do chia seeds. It, it works. It's just that you have to eat them, you know, more, okay? And the other thing I want to point out, because I often have vegetarians, you know, that, that will tell people just eat spinach, you know, and you'll get enough. But you have to eat 27 cups of spinach <laughs> to get the equivalent of 500 milligrams of DHA and EPA. So even though spinach is a really healthy food, um, I wouldn't count on that to get my EPA and DHA. And... I also want to point out that though the general guidance is about 3,500 milligrams of EPA and DHA per day, you know, or its equivalent, that's also somewhat based on all of these 
pro-inflammatory fats that we're eating. So if you really did a good job of cutting down on your pro-inflammatory fats, you might not need to take as much of the other. So one other, I'll get to you in one second, because one other thing I would just like to throw out there for you to think about is try, really try not to eat fats that come you know, in a bottle. As much as you can, try to get your fats in a food like in walnuts or almonds or avocado um, because then you're pulling in other nutrients as well. As much as we can, we need to stay away from refined foods, you know, like safflower, sunflower, blah, blah, oil. Um, I do make an exception to that. That's extra virgin olive oil. Um, and, and by the way, spend a lot of money on really good extra virgin olive oil that's deeply, deeply green. Because then you're getting some of the phytochemicals that are also beneficial. It's really funny, you know, olive oil got good press because of the Mediterranean diet benefits. Then they started, you know, making like colorless olive oil. Have you noticed that? Do you think that the Mediterranean diet use that? No. So, so we need to, you know, if we're going to do anything out of a bottle, extra virgin olive oil, deeply green, you know, strong flavor. Some of that strong flavor actually has antioxidants in it, okay? A couple of other things that were just interesting. Have you been reading about the gut biome and all the things that they're finding? It, it's just fascinating, and I think we're going to learn a lot um, in these next years about the importance of a healthy gut bacteria balance in terms of its potential impact on mood. Um, this was an early study from 2007, but they actually, some of the earlier studies are more with animals, and you know, then they kind of work their way into humans. But the uh, treatment of mice with a friendly bacteria normally found in the soil altered their behavior in a way similar to antidepressant drugs. I, I mean, that was like fascinating. And it kind of brought up to me, um, you know how overly conscious we, you know, we're using all this disinfectant all the time and, um, you know, we are so careful of our children, they kind of like can't, you know, go out in the garden and just dig around. Um, so maybe we need to be a little bit, you know, more balanced about that. And, and also there may be some benefit to eating more of these fermented foods. You know, we, we know about yogurt. Mm -hmm. um, some people take probiotics. Um, in earlier times when we didn't have refrigeration, we had to do things like sauerkraut, you know, or, or have... Um, other fermented vegetables that would keep without refrigeration. And those had friendly bacteria in them that were beneficial. One other thing I'm just going to say about keeping a healthy gut flora is that the friendly bacteria in the gut like to eat soluble fiber. So soluble fiber is found in a variety of different fruits and vegetables. But let me just give you an example um, of another type of food. 
Do any of you use oat bran? Okay, because oat bran is loaded with soluble fiber. So if you were going to make oatmeal in the morning and threw some oat bran into it, you'd be putting food there for your friendly bacteria, okay, which would be good. Um, lots of soluble fiber in, in apples, in oranges. Um, really, if you just eat plenty of fruits and vegetables, you get a lot of soluble fiber. And that is also beneficial in terms of, of friendly gut bacteria, which we think may have some positive impact on mood. So the bottom line is to minimize or avoid sugar, refined grains, and starchy vegetables, mostly potatoes to be careful of, to obtain adequate lean protein, and to choose foods that are rich in B vitamins, including B6, folate, and B12, choline, and magnesium, and to enjoy small, fatty fish two to three times a week for its equivalent from plant sources like flax and chia. I didn't have chocolate on that list, but you know, I'm sure you're gonna eat the chocolate anyway. Okay, so I'm officially done, but I'll stay for questions if you have any. Okay? You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.